for August 17th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 59. Hippie is to hipster as Woodstock is to Barack Obama. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably does not deserve. I am your host, Mark Lee, for this evening. That's right, you heard it, Mark Lee, not Matt, rather. I know you're probably breaking out in hives right now and having some other sort of panic-induced reaction, but hold tight, breathe deeply, everything's going to be okay. We're going to bring you the same quality overthinking it show while Matt, rather, is taking a well-deserved week off. And here to do that for you tonight is our panel of overthinkers, overthinkers excuse me, who, uh, commemorating this 40th anniversary... Of Woodstock. It was 40 years ago that uh, Sergeant, uh, not Pepper, but Sergeant something, told the bands. Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant no, Slaughter <laughs> told the bands to play uh, that Woodstock, um, uh, you know, happened in, not in Woodstock, but uh, in some other random ass town in upstate New York that nobody can remember anymore. Um, Albany. That happened 40 years ago. It's in Albany. <laughs> Albany <yeah. laughs> it happened in Albany. I know my history. Yes. So. Um, in honor of that transcendent concert experience, for some it was transcendent due to perhaps chemical reactions in their brains. Um, trust us, none of us are chemically altered right now. Well, I speak for myself. I am not chemically altered right now. But in honor of that transcendent concert experience, the panel tonight is going to answer this question, which is which was your uh, personally most transcendent concert experience? Starting in alphabetical order, as is per tradition, and legend and um, and practice, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going, Mark? <laughs> it is going great. Awesome, awesome. I'm just I'm brushing up on my transcendence a little bit by watching a montage on YouTube of John Woo trademark clips. And we just finished <laughs> standing back to back on opposite sides of a wall and then jumping out and shooting at each other. And now we're at uh, cool sunglasses and trench coats. And I, I hope the doves are coming up soon. There's like a two minute montage of shooting spicy handed and, and blasting things up. Anyway, uh, my most <laughs> transcendent concert spirits, now that I understand what transcendence is, I was going to say back when I saw the uh, uh, Nathaniel. Hawthorne tribute band, but that would be my most transcendental concert experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my most transcendent concert experience was for my birthday in 2003 when two of my roommates, actually one of them was Belinky, who writes for our site, and the other one has helped on our, an article or two on our site, uh, my friend Lindsay, um, said they were going to take me somewhere to meet on my birthday, and actually my birthday was Saturday. Uh, this was August 15th is my birthday, so this is the anniversary of sorts. Um, and thank all the overthinkingers who came to my birthday party. Yes, uh, overthinking overthinking lists. Um, well, thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. Anyway, long story short, I thought I was going to a baseball game because that was my best guess. Turned out I got to go to, Yankee, uh, to Giant Stadium, not Yankee Stadium, Giant Stadium, and watch John Bon Jovi. I'm sorry, the Doves just started. The Doves just started flying <laughs> <laughs> Those of you who don't know about John Woo movies, there's a lot of doves. Anyway, I got to see John Bon Jovi play a sold-out show at Giant Stadium in front of like 40,000 screaming women in their mid-30s and me and my two mates. <laughs> It was amazing. I sang along with like every song. I love Bon Jovi, and I was at a phase of my life where I loved him especially. 
Um, and my roommates really enjoyed that I knew the words to all the songs. And I think that my, uh, and much like the time that I went to go see Aqua Teen Hunger Force, the movie, with somebody who didn't get it at all, but was very amused by the fact that I didn't stop laughing for an hour and a half, um, <laughs> I, I became meta-entertainment. Uh, and and meta-entertainment, that, that's a form of transcendentalism, I suppose, or transcendence, rather, because I, in that sense... And I've rambled because I haven't been focused and the YouTube clip is over, so I'm closing the window. Uh, <laughs> um, it is transcendence because I passed out of myself and I actually seized upon the spirit of Bon Jovi and communicated it um, Pentecostally to my roommates who did not understand the, the power and the glory of the prayer upon which all of us were living, are living, continue to live. Keep the faith. <laughs> Amen. Now, Pete, I have a question for you. When you say you knew the words to all the songs, you literally mean all the songs, like every song in the set. I mean, I'm not exaggerating by that much, <laughs> um, so it was close. I'd pro- I didn't, probably didn't know the words to some of the newer songs at the time, although I did have the newest album at the time, which I think was Bounce, um, and I did buy Bounce, and I, I also bought Crush, so I'm, I'm, I didn't buy the one that they've done since then. Um, what was it called? Uh, These Days? I didn't buy These Days. That was another one. Um, that was older. These Days is older, but I didn't buy their latest album, but I bought Bounce and Crush, so I knew those songs, but anything that was on, like, the New Jersey album, the Slippery Wet album, uh, the eponymous album, the Keep the Faith album, I knew all that stuff, and Crossroads. So. And anyone who's listening to this wondering what to get Fenzel for his latest birthday, which was, you know, uh, just this weekend, the latest Bon Jovi album, apparently. I have to say that um, Bounce is a kind of unlikely name for a Bon Jovi album. Yeah, yeah. Because I think when, it's I, like, when, when it comes to like, music and I hear the word bounce, the first thing that comes to mind is bounce, 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 bounce. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> yes, the remix to Ignition by R. Kelly. <laughs> when that song was really popular, I worked in education as an educational administrator. And because of that, I had a benefit of tuition remission. And so I always used to talk about my tuition remission because I was out on a mission. <laughs> I worked at med school admissions. It, did. it was very fun stuff. It's, uh, but perhaps well, it's a dated I've, joke. Perhaps making R. Kelly jokes that don't involve being trapped in the closet or peeing on people are no longer acceptable in this world. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's nothing dated about it. Those words still rhyme. <laughs> That's right. It's not dated. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's just Fair enough. You've transcended, Jordan, by which I mean you've corrected me. Uh, you have proven yourself to be superior or supreme, which is the second definition of transcendent in the dictionary.com window that I have open in front of me right now. <laughs> which, which is only marginally less useful than the John Woo clip in teaching you about transcendent. Wow. Um... Well, it's, I guess I'm next in alphabetical order. I know this is different. Again, you know, you're probably breaking out in hives again with the disruption in the natural order in which the host, Matt Rather, is always at the end of alphabetical order. But no, L comes after F. I'm next. And my pick probably would be R. Kelly if I have ever seen the chance to see R. Kelly in concert. Um, but since I haven't... He was in the audience, and he was watching the show, and then he went and he bought himself a soda, came back and watched the audience for the show... Uh, never mind. Nice. That's... <laughs> I can keep doing that for like two hours and then do commentary on myself doing it. <laughs> it's the part where Mark Lee is in the audience watching the show. I like this part. If you've ever watched would... Trapped in the Closet, watch the DVD commentary on Trapped in the Closet because the whole thing is a narration and the DVD commentary is just a narration oh, it's, of it's, him narrating, which amazing. is hilarious. It's amazing. It's the part where you find out that um, 
he he rhymes. The reason why the character pulls out a Beretta in the first chapter of, the, of it is because he uh, the previous line ends in dresser, and he needed something to rhyme with dresser. So Beretta. <laughs> That's the kind of those are the kind like, of knowledge and wisdom that comes from the trapped in the closet DVD commentary. <laughs> it's a blessed, wonderful thing. R. Kelly's like, you know, the song almost ended right there, and then I remembered that Beretta is a kind of gun. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very far from the truth. Unless I actually know what it was. Anywho, um, you know that I think that discussion on trapped in the closet was quite transcend- trans- transcendent. As well, but my getting to the question, my um, my transcendent concert experience was uh, from courtesy of Bruce Springsteen's other famous native son. That being, of course, Bruce Springsteen. That <laughs> Bruce would Springsteen be the... has two children. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> what? No, I'm saying that Bruce Springsteen is the other famous native son of New Jersey. So New Jersey, New Jersey. has two 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 sons. Two I thought you were saying sons. that John Bon Jovi was the what son happened? of Springsteen. Oh, that'd be that'd be, that'd be weird. <laughs> that'd be what unlikely. There was a uh, Bruce. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen rocked so hard that he went back in time to the start of Mark's sentence and just like impl- stuck himself in there. <laughs> I like, I like, I'm, I'm picturing Bruce Springsteen at the feet of Yoda and, and being like, "No, man, I can't, I can't face Earth, Wind, and Fire, man, I can't do it." And it's like, if you fall, there is another. And like, you cut. It's like John Bon Jovi as like a 14 year old kid like practicing his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> And then they almost kiss, and it's really awkward uh, because they don't know their brothers. <laughs> wow! Uh, and then Max Weinberg makes out with uh, makes makes out with John. <laughs> so you, you picked Max for the Han and not for the Chewy. I get. I think Sadiqul Bamba is Hans is uh, Chewbacca. Well, at least wow. the one who goes in the year 2000. This is, I think we just, uh, gosh, we just had a uh, a Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, uh, Conan O'Brien, Star Wars mashup there. And if that you isn't transcendent, I don't know what is. We really should save the whole which member of the E Street Band is Chewbacca for another podcast. <laughs> that could be a podcast by, by itself. That's a whole other topic that we can address. <laughs> yeah, so getting back on track, what was this concert like, Mark? Uh, just like a, a, a two-hour explosion of rock and roll power and amazingness is what it was. From the in- introduction, the, 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 if I wanted to point to one thing that is that was transcendent about it, and you know, if we're going to you know going beyond ordinary limits, surpassing, exceeding, if we're using that as our definition of transcendent, um, it's at the beginning of the show when Springsteen comes out and and, and lays into the op- opening riff. Of uh, Radio Nowhere, which one of his, was his newest, newest one of his newest songs at the time, um, the man appeared, I think, about ten feet tall on stage. I mean, I was pretty far back in uh, the arena in Philadelphia where I saw him, but the man just seemed like a giant. Mm-hmm. That's the best that I can describe. But there was that, and of course, you know, when the monster hits come along, and just the entire arena becomes swept up in the moment. In the song, and like everybody is like on the same wavelength of enthusiasm, and when you have twenty thousand people on that same wavelength of just like you know, their 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 minds are just exploding essentially, you know, by because Bruce Springsteen is playing "Born to Run" right there in front of you. That just you know that expands ex- exponentially, you know, beyond just the sum of the enthusiasm of twenty of in twenty of twenty thousand individual people. You know, that sum total is something far greater than any of us could possibly imagine. And that 
was the transcendence of Springsteen. Sounds like it. It was fantastic. And I'm seeing him again. Uh, I cannot wait for this. I have a friend of mine managed to get uh, field-level seats for uh, the upcoming uh, series of concerts that's going to close out Giant Stadium in the fall. So I, I will prepare to be transcended uh, to have a, yet another transcendent experience. That's a hard word to say, transcendent. Why did, why did we choose this as, call, as, the, as the question? Just call it, just say your most John Wooish. <laughs> John Wooish. <laughs> what was your most John Wooish experience in a concert? I'd be like, it was totally that time that I went to see John Mayer and then he played two guitars at once. <laughs> and, then <there> was, <laughs> and then he held up his guitar right in Dave Matthews' face. And then Dave Matthews held up his guitar right in John Mayer's face. And they just stood there for a second. It was very tense. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> And last in alphabetical order, Mr. Jordan Stokes, uh, what was your most John Wooish or transcend- transcendent uh, concert experience? The most transcendent rock concert I ever saw would have to be the time that, uh, that I and actually a bunch of the writers for the site went to see Guar in concert, and, uh, and that, was, that was really an experience. Guar! Guar! You know, Jordan, I only threw those shorts out like a couple weeks ago, but they were never the same after that show. They really never were. Yeah, was- I mean, when you talk about transcendence as being something that goes beyond the limits of your ordinary experience, usually when you go to a rock concert, the band does not turn a, uh, a fire hose filled with synthetic blood on the audience. So when you go to a Guar concert, you move beyond that normal experience. <laughs> Jordan, do you remember my two favorite moments during that concert? I'm sure you remember them, too. Other than the moment where Blinky took that bet to wear that sync hat and then got punched in the head. Uh, <laughs> and had to wear it on his elbow. Uh, <laughs> okay, can I tell the story at the very start of the show? I, I okay, yeah, I assume that's one of them, right? Oh, first of all, I mean, um... So, we, you know, Guar comes out there on stage, and we, uh, we went to this show during college, and there was a smattering of people there who were from the college, and you could sort of identify them. And then there were the Guar fans, who had clearly <laughs> come in from all around. And some of them, like, they get the joke of Guar, and then there's some that clearly do not understand that there's anything funny about Guar. Right? <laughs> and all of, them, all of them are very, very excited that Guar is there. So when, uh, when this lead singer, uh, what's his name, Odorous Arungus, comes out on stage <laughs> in his giant rubber suit with his, uh, with his like, fangs and his, his sort of uh, Predator 1 hair. Um, <laughs> the, the crowd goes nuts. And then, uh, Mark, do you mind going back through to bleep and expletive after this show? Uh, not at all. Go for it. All right, excellent. So the crowd goes nuts, and Odorous Rungus seizes the mic, and he shouts, Shut the f*** up! When I want your approval, I will beat it out of you. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what happens? Does the crowd go silent? Or... <laughs> they, uh, they laughed a lot, but yeah, then they, then they sat down and then shut up, because he was well, smaller than we my, were. My other favorite moment my, is the one, because that, that is one of my favorite moments, because that was awesome. <laughs> Everyone was like, Guar, 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 and he's like, he's like, oh my god. But it was later in the show, after we'd actually bombarded with the kind of music that Guar actually plays, actually the specific music that Guar actually plays, played specifically by Guar, all up in our grills for like an hour and a half, which just like shocks you into, a t- into just a stupor. Like all of the belligerents had given way to this just like absent stupor uh, where people were just totally thrashed by Guar. And it's a fairly small club, uh, the place that we saw him at. Uh, so we were just like right up in our grills. And, and he finishes a song. Uh, they finished a song. The bear trap guy was playing too. And the centurion <laughs> guy, the guy with the head of a bear trap. 
Uh, this might have been after they. This was before they cut the Pope in half and fed him to a dinosaur. <laughs> but it was <laughs> actually happened on stage, not the real Pope. Uh, and but it was after they chopped off Mike Tyson's hands and he died. And it was after they played jump rope with Osama bin Laden's intestines. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they finished the song and there was just silence, right? There's total silence. Like you couldn't even hear what was going on next to you. Like everybody just was like dead. And he goes up to the mic real quiet, the lead singer, Mr. Odious Arungus, and he's like, No no clappy? No little clappy. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I need your approval, my ego is fragile. <laughs> I was just kidding before when I said that, guys. Yeah, exactly. It was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> a, a question on the and logistics really... of all this, uh, you know, special effects. Are the is the Osama bin Laden and the Pope, you know, these people that you mentioned, um, are they constructed out of, like, paper mache or foam? Foam, foam, rubber, foam rubber costumes and puppets. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, foam rubber I mean, latex tubing yeah. through which to shoot the fake blood if there is a fair amount. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a whole variety like, of, I'm sure, thoroughly fireproofed puppets. <laughs> <laughs> this was pre-Great White, but I think that they had the together. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you go back and, and bleep an expletive for me, Mark? <laughs> Gosh, guys. Well, <laughs> since, no, since, since, we're, since we're bleeping away here, well, I guess why the f*** not? Oh, craziness. Oh, the language By the way, um, in, in the last season of The Wire, totally dies. But you gotta go back and bleep that. You gotta go back and bleep that. Okay, okay. All right. From here and henceforward, now, please, you know, try not to say anything that I had to go back and bleep. I'm okay with you going back into that section. Hey, hey, Mark, can you go back after this podcast is over and just like run the entirety of the of the techno song Sandstorm over what I'm about to say? No, I will not do that. I do want to. I do want to say one more thing about uh, about Guar and about transcendence, which is that one of the kind of classic ways to achieve transcendence in popular culture and in life generally is to wallow in the abject until your ego has been completely like reduced to a uh, a sort of tabula rasa, and that really did happen with that concert. You know, like you didn't walk out of there feeling like the same human being that you were when you went in there at the start. And then you yeah. you know you get some sleep and it comes back to you, but still, it was a punishing punishing evening you know so I guess yeah. the other the other method then the woodstock approved method was just get really high and then you know spend <laughs> a lot of time outdoors with 300,000 other people yeah. getting high before seeing guar would be a waste of like perfectly good drugs and time you know <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no point to doing either of those things in combination that's that's like taking a that's like taking a plane to like the bike path like <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like you know. It's just like why are you even bothering to go bicycling? Like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, Gore yeah. was not at Woodstock. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. They were buried under the Antarctic ice. Anybody who knows anything about Gore <laughs> knows that they crashed on this planet million, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, and were trapped under the Antarctic ice until they were freed by their manager. Right? Isn't that what happened? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's about as accurate. But yeah, they're, 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 uh, the message of peace and love that Woodstock had and the message of killing all celebrities that Guar had, at least at the time that we saw them. Not a particularly good match. No. So yeah, they were not at Woodstock. You're, you're correct. And, and we weren't, and I suspect that the vast majority of our listeners were not there. Um, may, maybe you were you know, buried under ice 
or you know, on your way to another Perhaps planet. That's like Jean Grey. You were deep below the Long Island Sound while yeah. your doppelganger was being the Dark Phoenix. Right. <laughs> or I, I guess I suspect most of us, you know, were neither yet born nor conceived uh, at the time. That being, right. you know, 1969. So we weren't there. Um, so the question that I want to bring out to the panel uh, to the start, you know, our 40th anniversary Woodstock discussion is what does Woodstock mean uh, for, to, to us? And, you know, for lack of a better word, us being essentially the 20 to 30 year old set. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the little bird from Snoopy. He uh, <laughs> <laughs> was totally high at the time. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that <laughs> the little Wait, bird from Snoopy who was buried under the ice. End the podcast there. Should we just end the podcast <laughs> right there? I feel like I can't improve on that. <laughs> Okay, that's it. We're going to end the podcast. We're going to go write that fan fiction right now. <laughs> well, you know, so to my to my generation, what Woodstock speaks to me about is that time that they did that Woodstock concert, you know, that was called Woodstock, and they charged $6 for a bottle of water, and a whole bunch of people set all the vending and concession trucks on fire, and the place was shut down. Do you guys remember that? Oh, I remember. This was uh, Woodstock oh, 99, I believe, right? Was it one? Was it Woodstock '99? I don't know specifically which one it was, but it was like such the. It was like it was like point counterpoint on like let's see how we can let's have a race let's have a race between contemporary teenagers and corporations to see who can betray the spirit of Woodstock fastest and hardest. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) and it was like the corporations are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to charge you for everything, everything, everything. You're going to have to like charge to pay money to pee. And then and then the kids are like, oh yeah, well we're going to kill each. Other and like, <laughs> it's, it's good that you bring that up because that I think does actually is an excellent like, counterpoint to the original Woodstock because you know this one was corporate and there was violence and you know henceforth you know all sorts of ironic things spool out of that. Um, but you also bring up another interesting point is that you know I think of a you know, word association type thing. Um, if not first, then Woodstock '99 and the riots that come along with that you know come up fairly quickly. When you know the thought of Woodstock comes to your mind, is that about? Right. Is that correct? And so I'm curious, Jordan, if if you had kind of a similar you know word association experience coming out of Woodstock. Yeah, I mean, when I think of Woodstock, um, I think of it as this amazing thing that happened that our generation is like we never have access to. Right. And like if we, if we try to get to it, then we're going to have Woodstock 99 happen. So like I first think of the old one and how great it probably must have been. And then I think about how blocked off I am from it. You know? So hmm. so you're basically like you're basically like Seth outside of the Garden of Eden, and like and when you think about like where you come from, you think of Cain and Abel. You don't really think about like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you're like, eh, can't really do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It must it must have been so great to be up there just like naming animals and stuff, but you know. But all I've I mean, got is like is all I've got is this Limp Biscuit album. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> honestly, honestly, my generation gets left pretty out of the Bible. I'm going to beget some things. Uh, I'm going to live a long time, and then I'll be. <laughs> so, so can somebody? I, all right. So let me. I'll be a little bit. Uh, I made a couple of confessions to like my sort of uh, weak points. Woodstock and everything surrounding it is a bit of a weak point for me because I'm not particularly enthusiastic about that era of music. Can somebody explain to me what actually happened at Woodstock and why it's important, other than that people are always trying to tell me that it's important 
I mean, you can include if everybody tells you it's important as the only reason it's important if that's the reason it's important. I know there was a concert. I know that Jimi Hendrix was there, but presumably Jimi Hendrix played a lot of concerts, right? I mean, yeah. so I don't know. I mean, he was a professional musician, so I hope he got work uh, playing at shows and stuff. Otherwise, it would have been pretty tough for him to make a living. And that would have been a shame because, yeah, here he was pretty good at guitar, and people should be able to see people play guitar when they're good at it. But that that's all semantics. I think... <laughs> Pete, to answer your question, uh, to take an attempt at answering your question, you know, I'm you know far from you know an expert on on Woodstock, um, but I do appreciate a lot of the music from that area. Is I think there's dance two there are two answers to that. One is the timing of the event, and the other is the size. So the size is the easy one, right? It was massive, you know, okay. the, the teeming hundreds of thousands of people who came to the event, um, you know, who was which was in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York, um, and that it passed largely without incident. So the size of it was one thing. Um, which, which, which also spoke to the magnitude of the countercultural event, a uh, countercultural movement at the time. And the other part of it was the timing in right. terms of 1969 um, with the heat of the Vietnam War, you know, uh, and the, you know, how that and the civil rights movement and how that was, you know, tearing the country apart, essentially how, um, you know, also, again, speaking to the size and the, and the momentum of the trans trans um, sorry of the of the, of the, the, the countercultural movement um you know that has had definitely picked up ahead of steam of sorts you know this whole summer of love thing i i think is 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 not just a manufactured term you know that was 19 the summer of 1969 it was a real uh watershed moment in american history or at least was you know a, a seen as something of a peak moment mm. of, of american history so you have so wait, all these so- things coming together and that's why woodstock then stands out as just kind of um you know, a, a real touchstone, uh, touchstone moment in that time. Okay, so so forgive me if I'm wrong, okay. but what you're saying is that it was really it was really awesome and spectacular and something that you're always that people remember because it was really huge, right? Mm-hmm. And because the timing of it was great, and and it just everything just it just all came at the right time, and uh, that's what she said. Do I have that all correct? Is that all accurate? Okay. I, that's, the, that's the best. That's the best that I can do at, at this point without having. <laughs> let, you know, me, uh, let me take another shot at it, and oh, you can re- react uh, further to Marx if you want, Pete. Yeah. Oh no, I just wanted to say that's what she said. That's all. That's all I have okay. to do. Okay. <laughs> it's like when um, I'm losing at Settlers of Catan. All I do is start making more jokes. <laughs> It's how I deal with weakness. It's how I deal with situations where I feel like I don't know what's going on. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Jordan. It's how I deal with weakness. That's what she said. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The thing about Woodstock, um, and I'm drawing this partially from reading all the retrospectives that have been coming out in the New York Times and pretty much everywhere you look uh, for the past month and a half, um, it was something that the counterculture did um, and built, and was very, very massive, and it worked very, very well. And I think that's, uh, that seems like kind of a, a pointless little thing, but it actually means a great deal. Because whenever you have a counterculture, that means that there is sort of normal life, which is being productive, having a job, having a family, all these things. And then you have uh, the counterculture, which, depending upon what time you're alive, might be you know going on pilgrimages all your life rather than farming in your medieval uh, British village, or it might mean uh, you know living on the the left bank in in Paris and uh, you know 
drinking absinthe and painting ballet dancers, or it might mean uh, living in a VW bus and following Grateful Dead around. Mm. And generally, uh, the trade-off that you make is either you're going to conform or you're going to base your entire life on rejecting the mainstream culture and not produce anything else, which means that people can always turn to you and say, yeah, well, what are you going to do, hippie? You know, if it wasn't for me, then the world would fall apart because hippies can't produce anything. All they do is sit around and, and uh, smoke beanies. And then the counterculture for a little while could say, hey, look, we made Woodstock, right? Like, this is huge. If we can do this, then clearly we can, like, uh, run the, the military, which, of course, will turn into a, um, a flower dispensary of some kind, and run uh, healthcare, which will be based on uh, the healing properties of crystals and hemp and so on. Um, so they basically will become Holland in the 1600s. Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, um, and, okay. and, and the dream that was Woodstock lasted for a little while until uh, what's the, the thing that happened a few years later? Is Altamont where the Hells Angels killed all those people, right? Not a few, <laughs> that one guy. I did not know about years. that. That sounds awesome. Shortly yeah, after Woodstock. Yeah. So wait, Altamont, you saying? Is, is that the right? Is that the right word? Yeah, Altamont. Mark? It was another large, cult, uh, large out, outdoor concert event. Um, the what the the, motor, the the Hell's Angels, the motorcycle gang, was hired to do security, and they killed someone uh, when the, while the Rolling Stones were playing. Oh, geez, that sucks. Yeah, it was kind of dark. So, yeah, if you're looking for a Woodstock 2.0 that was horrible in every way, like, you don't actually need to wait till Woodstock 99. You have an Altamont, like, within, I don't know, it's not very long after, right? Right. Mm. Yeah, so, so, Jordan, you were getting at something there in terms of, like, you know, there's, there's you know, there's been a counterculture at, uh, you know, at different periods of time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of what is our counterculture now and would they be capable? What's that? (laughs) Bloggers. Bloggers. No, the counterculture is clearly the hipsters with their pot bellies, according to the New York Times. (laughs) Oh, man. That was such a piece of garbage article. That New York, I, I don't know. For the people who listen to the podcast, I might have referred to this in the past. I might not have. I used to keep an email thread. Um, I used to live in New York, and I used to keep an email thread with the guys who are mostly now overthinking it writers, um, which I pretty much was the only person who would write in it, and it was why I need a news newspaper. And it would be like all the ridiculous, <laughs> stupid nonsense that is published in like the style and art sections of the New York Times. And they, the latest is incident of this, maybe not even the latest. They've probably done something else since then. But one of the really awful things that they published lately was like all the hipsters are fat now and it's cool to be fat (laughs) it's just like it was like for christ's sake specifically it's like you can have a hipster pot belly and like it's cool to have a hipster pot belly and everybody in brooklyn has them i know it's cool because i went to brooklyn and i saw a lot of people who had pot bellies therefore it's cool and it's just this like awful and it's they quote a bunch of like random people i don't know do you have anything different to say about that article I'm I don't but I I'm I'm thinking of another article though that was splashed on the front the homepage of the New York Times website recently the oh. one about the uh the hipster dance class in downtown LA. Oh no, no tell me about this. Wow. Yeah, it was it was you know the content of the article was just pretty much like pretty much straight up reporting like there are these hipsters and they're you know young creative artist types and they wear pastel colors and spandex and they listen to 80s music. Mm. And this is what's happening in downtown LA and isn't this very hipsterish? <laughs> but anyway, but getting to the you know back to the you know the the, the 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 subject of Woodstock here. Now let me try to make an analogy here, and I want you guys to fill in the blanks. Hippie right. is the hipster 
as Woodstock is to blank. Ooh. Can that be filled in with anything? I'm sure that there's an answer that I don't know. (laughs) I think that the hipsters want it that way. Okay, how about this? Going Uh, back to Jordan's, I don't know if your answer of bloggers was, you know, as, as, you know, current day counterculture was, was was serious or not, but what about social networking? Essentially, huh. you know, the combined, you know, time wasting and self aggrandizing that manifests itself online and Twitter and Facebook and MySpace. The combined output of that is the Woodstock, the equivalent of Woodstock for our current counterculture. Uh, but you have to pick an event, right? It's not just the maybe there's not an event. So you can say like maybe... Barack Obama, right, is the hipster Woodstock. No, maybe maybe it's not. What I'm, what I'm saying is, it's not an event. <laughs> Jordan likes that one. What, what I'm saying is, <laughs> I like that one a lot. It's, it's really depressing. It's pretty <laughs> I think like, we have. I think we have the title of the show, which is Barack Obama, the hipsters Woodstock. <laughs> but um, I'm getting wear my Palestinian scarf or whatever the heck they call it. Yeah. I will say that, um, like you know, the the couple of days after he got elected, had that kind of feeling of like, oh my God, we can actually do stuff, right? Yes, and that's but a like, good point. And actually, there's the spontaneous celebrations in the streets, and you know, pe- like people gathering in you know all sorts of parts of New York City, and you know, like singing the, the patriotic songs and just you know celebrating and high fiving people outside. Mm-hmm. That did have certainly have a very Woodstock ish. Uh, feel to it did, in some way. Did people high five at Woodstock, Mark? Is there a lot of <laughs> high fiving going on at Woodstock? Uh, uh, you can, it, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> in, my, so. in my version, in my in my in my vision of it, yes. Okay. Do you know uh, where I, I want to find out where high fiving comes from? Wikipedia ho! <laughs> while, while you're Wikipedia that, I want to get back to uh, you know this idea that you know the event Woodstock has to be an event. And my argument by saying that, you know, the hipsters of Woodstock is just, you know, the output of social networking is that precisely that. You don't need to have an event anymore. You just have, you know, a bunch of crap that's online and people don't have to meet in the meet space anymore. Um, they just can converge and interact. Like it's all distributed, right? It's distributed, I mean, it's, exactly. uh, <laughs> it's like SETI. It's, it's now uh, done on million desktops around the world rather than everyone coming together to, uh, to make a supercomputer. Um, <laughs> I think that that's something that I'd like to think that it's true, but I I feel that I've heard this before, that actually it's more like having that um, constant low, slow leak of energy that is social networking prevents the steam from ever building up to create an explosion on the order of Woodstock. So, in fact, uh, because we can now kind of express ourselves and be all lovey-dovey and whatnot uh, from the comfort of our own homes means that we will never, in fact, rise up against uh, Whitey, who will continue to keep us down. So, wait, I've been looking up high fives on the Internet. What were you guys talking about? (laughs) Whitey. (laughs) Whitey? Whitey loves high fives. Yeah. I I don't doubt it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, high fives come out of the basketball circuit in the United States, 1979 to 1980. So, actually, people probably didn't high five at Woodstock. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The University of Louisville player Derek Smith claims to have coined the term high five. Um, an earlier occurrence of the high five, often regarded as the first use of the gesture in sport, is that of the high five exchange between Dusty Baker and Glenn Burke in 1977, um, when they were mem- they were players for the L.A. Dodgers. Um, hmm. awesome. So what did awesome. people what did people do at Woodstock? Did they like hug? 
<laughs> yes, they had a special <laughs> hug. That's just silly. It's, it's a special <laughs> hug that happens between two people who like each other, sort of. <laughs> when a man and a woman are grow up in oppressed circumstances and, and never have a chance to act out their physical urges, and they go to a place where there's lots of mud, um, that's where babies come from. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I, I, I see what you were saying. I was thinking of kind of the uh, the bro hug, you know, like arm across the chest, punch the back once. And yes, like, you have to do that or it's gay. You have to hit the guy. Yeah. Or it's a gay hug, and that's not good. I uh, wanted to like explain that to a kid, but <laughs> I'm being so then, explain that to a kid where you're like, when a man and a man like each other, but they want to make sure that no one thinks they're gay, then they touch each other in a special way and get little calluses forming on their shoulder blades. <laughs> <laughs> or alternatively, they hold guns really close in each other's faces and recognize yeah. each other for a moment as a dove flies in slow motion in front of them. <laughs> So I thought that was kind of the opposite. It's when a man and a man hate each other, but want everyone to think that they're gay. <laughs> well said, sir. Well said. That's. I think. I think we've just completed our face-off. <laughs> wow. yeah, can we uh, take a little digression to say face-off? I think is maybe our generation's Top Gun. <laughs> just because it's like it's so like. Uh, heterophobic and like um homoerotic at the same time um, yeah yeah it's uh and because it's fantastic you know i thought our generation's top gun was the lord of the rings with, uh, <laughs> possibly Mr. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, hold on let me spray this seltzer water all over you <laughs> that great, uh, <laughs> the, the great hobbit volleyball sequence yeah. <laughs> Mr. Frodo, show your thong show your thong people in the audience what no <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going with that. I'm actually flashing back to other times I went to Toad's place, the place where Guar played, and all the ridiculous things that they did there. Oh, man. But, um, yeah, no, no, no. I, I feel like, I, I mean, I guess maybe, the, do you think that there's a difference between the face-off generation and the Lord of the Rings generation, or do you think we're the same people? Because hmm. face-off is a little bit before Lord of the Rings. And you feel like they have different audiences, right? I don't know. What do, what do you think, Mark? Uh, I have not seen Face Off actually, so I can't really comment on oh, that. Man, you I gotta know. see Face Off. It's so it's so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Turn on my overthinking uh, card now. I know, I know, I know. Um, no, Face Off was in made in 1997, and the first Lord of the Rings movie came out. Not the very first Lord of the Rings movie came out in 2001. So they're not really different at all. They're just a few years apart. But yeah. Face Off is basically like a John Woo movie, but with white people in it. Uh, <laughs> and, it, it may in fact be a John Woo movie with white people in it. Huh? That's in fact exactly what it is. And yeah. <laughs> you, you know, that's very apt. It's very funny you should call it that, Jordan, because that happens yeah. to be exactly what it is. <laughs> this is how we, you know, we work together, uh, kind of. Uh, there's a dialectic that goes on, and eventually we arrive at the truth. <laughs> exactly. There's the thesis, and then there's the right fist. <laughs> any, any last thoughts on Woodstock and uh, our generation's possibilities on a Woodstock before we move on? Well, topic. I think if we have a really, really big town meeting where we all yell a bunch of crap at the same time, it could be like Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and if not, if not, at least we'll have prevented the socialist uh, 
the socialist uprising in America. They really should have had something called Ron Paul stock, where everybody gets together in the middle of the woods. <laughs> and they very well may have had it, and I didn't get to go, but it would have been awesome to go to Ron Paul stock and to watch, like, who would play the music at Ron Paul stock? Or would they just be like, music is frivolous. Like, I don't like music. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't get me wrong. I love a lot of the things that Ron Paul was talking about. And the things that he talked about that I didn't love, I thought were hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you remind me of a good you, – when you brought up Ron Paul stock, uh, Pete, you remind me of one last thing that I want to talk about and then we'll move on. From Is it stock. Sean Paul? Yeah. Sean Paul is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one thing. But what I wanted to ask though is, you know, the blank stock has, you know, come into the parlance as, you know, a, any sort of gathering of sorts. Right. Right. But we like also Wayne have stock. we Wayne also have stock from Wayne Stock, right. We also yeah. have Blank Con as well, like mm. Comic Con, you know, the convention mm. of sorts. So yeah. uh is there a difference then between Blank Stock and Blank Con? A stock and a con. I feel like uh a con is actually produced by an industry, maybe. Right? Like Star Trek Usually? convention, magic gathering convention. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that when you say stock, it's supposed to be a big outdoor party, right? And a convention is like indoors. <laughs> is it that? That's basic? all it is. Yeah, <laughs> I, that actually, yeah that, I think that is actually a very succinct so and true definition of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, but there's all those other fun suffixes. I thought you were going to go in that other direction and start talking about like gate, like uh, mm-hmm. like con and gate and stock. Um, my personal favorite is prov, but that's because I'm in improv and you make all, any sort of group by putting something in prov after it. So you could do unicorn prov and it would be unicorns doing improv or some nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, or but yeah, yeah, yeah. Or wood, Woodstock prov, Comic-Con prov. Is there a lot of con? I mean, is con just a – does people – I mean, con! I'm, I got that out of the way. Is <laughs> Other than places that are just called convention and they say convention shortly as con, do people add con to something for sort of effect? Like, because Comic Con is a comic convention, right? Right. It's an abbreviation. Whereas Woodstock is not, the, the term stock isn't part of the name of Wayne Stock. Like, it's not like it takes place in Wayne Stock, New York, although that probably is on the DVD, which I did not. <laughs> I will say that uh, whenever, like, three or more of the writers on this blog get together, I always think it in my head is, like, overthink con. <laughs> I was going to say the difference between a stock and a con is, <laughs> is like, whether you bought it from an SEC-approved broker or something like that. <laughs> uh, 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 that's yeah. a good point, actually. So we've... we've um, We've uh, and at different points have tossed about the idea of having some sort of overthinking at live event gathering. So, yeah. under what circumstances would it be overthinking at stock, and in what circumstances would it be overthinking at con? If it rained, it would be overthinking at con because <laughs> it would be because yeah, we'd go inside. <laughs> <laughs> if it were in the winter, it would probably be overthinking at con. But if yeah. we did it in a park, it would be overthinking at stock. And if someone busts out the acoustic guitar, what? <laughs> if, if we end up setting the concession stand on fire, probably overthinking at stock. <laughs> Can we possibly like rent out a restaurant that has a little patio and have like overthinking at stock con? And just have like yeah. go inside of the buffet, or you can like sit out on the porch. <laughs> and then awesome. can we have a horrible scandal that happens there, and then have overthinking at Stockcon Gate? Yes. And then can we have an improv show about it called Overthinking at Stockcon Gate Prov? Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, yes. And we then, can. and then yes. all culture. <laughs> yes, we can. Yes, we yeah. can. Barack Obama's the hipster Woodstock. Yeah. All right. Oh wow. <laughs> 
And of course, do, Barack I, Obama, as we all know, during Woodstock, was buried deep under Antarctica, frozen in ice. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Antarctic ice, not American ice. <laughs> I want to see Jean Grey's birth certificate, or I'm not going to believe it's actually her, because she's fake died too many times. See, in that case, you have a reason. If it's a comic book character, you have every reason to believe that they're not the person that they say they are, because of all sorts of crazy crap, like parallel universes, or aliens that can possess your brain, or like people who can change appearance and clone other people, or like maybe it's just an alternate title, you know? I mean, I don't know. I could go on, you know? But that's really a whole other <laughs> podcast. I'm gonna put yeah. we're gonna put that off with the online dating podcast and the podcast about which member of the E Street band is Chewbacca. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say one more thing about Woodstock before we move on? Which is uh, we started this off by saying that everyone who's listening to this clearly didn't go to Woodstock. Please, for the love of God, if you were at Woodstock and you're listening to us, call in and tell us what it was like because we would love to have that voicemail. Yes, absolutely, yeah. abso- absolutely. The number is twenty. 20- Eat log zero one two zero three two eight five six four zero one. We'll repeat that at the end of the show as well too, because we do uh, always love to hear from our listeners, especially those who have been to Woodstock. And you can actually tell us if there were high fives at Woodstock, because we really yeah. want to know. And you know, if you were at Lollapalooza, why don't you just also call in? Because I didn't know that they were still doing those. So <laughs> maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. If you know whether Lollapalooza ever really existed or whether it's just simply a conspiracy that's been invented by a sleeper cell of Al-Qaeda, you just call in and you let us know. Um, yeah. Or Lilith Fair. Actually, we should put Lilith Fair out there for the 14th Amendment. Oh, no, wait. Which amendment? The one with women given, getting the right to vote. Ah, whatever. The Lilith se- Fair is also... No, not, not, not the second. Never mind. No. Second Amendment? Yeah, that's the one that gives women the right to vote with, yeah, because they have the right to shoot you if you can't get them the right to exactly. vote. Exactly. Okay, uh, moving right along. Uh, the- fancy free. <laughs> Wait, That's the amendment that gave me right. right to <laughs> yeah. does, does anyone have a segue? No, nothing. Speaking no. Wait, of, that's a really hard one there because we're going to try to get How about each of us give it a shot? Mark, you go first, and then I'll, I'll go, and then and then Jordan go. We're going to do three segues. All right. All right. Okay. Uh, speaking of the uh, you know the rights that were enumerated to us, um, a movie was dealt with the deprivation of rights to those who, uh, it's unclear if they were enumerated to, open this weekend, and uh, we'd like to talk about that now, being District 9. Okay. All right, all right. So, speaking of Barack Obama being encased in ice, District 9 (laughs) came out this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough. You go, Jordan. You go, Jordan. (laughs) I'll go. Speaking of things that we plan to talk about on this podcast, District 9 came out this weekend. (laughs) Awesome. I think Marx is probably the best, but I feel like yeah. we get style points. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, somewhere on the back end of the Overthinking It site, I have a secret little uh, a secret little page that no one else can access that just counts my style points that I give myself <laughs> for things that are like not constructive and don't contribute to the conversation and like don't make our readers happy, but which like I personally want to reward myself for. So it's just like. Boom, boom, boom. Every time I write an article about Dragon Ball that gets, like, fewer than 30 hits to the second page, boom, there it is. Right <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but this is the time in which we shall talk about District 9, which Fenzel and I saw this weekend. I think we both... But Jordan was not allowed to see it because no Jordans are allowed in the theater because right. it's, it's segregation. No Jordans it, allowed. <laughs> So the movie's gotten a lot of critical praise. Um, I think it will do well at the box office. Um, it is both, you know, thought-provoking and also action-packed. 
and you know enjoyable to watch and all these kind of things. Um, but obviously, the movie is getting a lot of attention because of this kind of allegory it sets up in terms of apartheid and since set in South Africa. Of course, where there was actual apartheid happening, and so they got the aliens. They've they've put them aside in the slum. They're treated poorly, um, and essentially, you know, the point being that humanity is racist to the aliens. Mm. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we can say with confidence that District Nine did do well at the box office. It got thirty-seven million in ticket sales during its opening weekend, which, to put it in perspective, is about half the opening weekend of Fast and Furious. <laughs> so. <laughs> That that's about it's it's that's a proof of its quality. So it's like half as good as Fast and Furious. <laughs> no, no, no. Which no. one? Which one was it then? Uh, it was. I think it was. It wasn't Fast. Yeah, so <laughs> it was Furious, indeed. I think is is. Yeah, 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 definitely. So there, are, fair warning to listeners: there may be District Nine spoilers coming up, which we're not going to bleep out because, like I told you guys, I'm done with the leaping out. I'm going back to that last part of of the podcast, which we bleep things out, and I'm not going to do that anymore. But but to be totally fair, like having seen District Nine, it, the marketing may have given you the idea that there's some sort of secret or twist or like crazy funny thing that happens. There's no twist. Like District Nine is not the kind of movie where a spoiler is going to ruin your experience of it. Like everything that it doesn't turn out that it was just plants all along. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It turns out at the end of District Nine that they're powerless against the color yellow. Um, <laughs> it's just—it's <laughs> actually a setup to the Green Lantern movie starring Ryan Ryan Reynolds. It's uh, it's gonna oh be my very god! Exciting. Can you imagine? <laughs> the end, like the, the sweet alien thing, like takes off its mask and it's Van Wilder, like. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say what a wonderful cultural moment it was when we all thought Cloverfield was a Voltron movie? Uh, that was a really <laughs> that was a really wonderful time in history when we were all like, "Oh man, this crazy Cloverfield movie that we don't know what it's about. Maybe it's Voltron. Maybe it's the Green Lantern." And it's like, "Nope, it's not." And then we were yeah, returned to our like either I saw this on the internet or it's going to be my next post on the site, which was like top ten movies that Cloverfield was rumored to have been and wasn't, but would have been better if it was. <laughs> <laughs> Voltron movie, HP Lovecraft movie. <laughs> Goes on. Yeah, they thought it was going to be Iron Man, I think, too, because Iron Man hadn't come out yet when they started marketing it, I think. Huh? Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I yeah, like the, the Voltron movie because they said it's alive, and everyone thought they said it's a lion. So they thought it was <laughs> But anyway, District 9 is about apartheid, and it's pretty obviously about apartheid. Now, I want to say I like District 9. District 9 is a good movie. Dix, we need to find a, a word for this, and I hesitate to use the word Pixar-ish because I feel like it's condemning in a way I don't want to condemn it. But I want to find a name, and maybe you guys can help me out, for movies that start out – like intellectually dense, thought-provoking, and artistically rigorous, and formally rigorous, that become very conventional Hollywood-style movies about halfway through, and like mm-hmm. take you to a sort of like you know uh, chocolate cake kind of satisfying, predictable conclusion. So um, Wally would be like Exhibit A, right? You're saying kind of. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, Up is probably even more glaring than Wally, um, but Wally is more popular than Up, and so, but they're both very similar in that regard. It's like it starts out as like very sort of like this could be a short film nominated for best animated short in the Oscars, and it ends with like this could be something that inspires a lunchbox, and both of those things are good. Like I like lunch. I certainly need something to carry it in, and the Oscars are all handy. <laughs> 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 I would say that um, both both Up and Wally actually manage that transition fairly gracefully, which is by no means usually the case when you get one of these things happening, right? 
Yeah, you know, and, and District 9 does a fine job of it as well, at least in my opinion. I don't know. What did you think about it, Mark? Oh, yeah, I was about to agree. I would say the same thing. And at some point, you notice that a lot of the you know, pseudo-documentary type uh, you know, uh, uh, techniques that were used at the beginning to set up the movie give way to more conventional uh, you know, filmmaking and, and fictional narrative devices. But by that point, at least for me, I didn't care. Yeah, you know, exactly. they, they set it up and you know the, set so many great things in motion that I was just you know very much you know wanted to see what was going to happen next. Um, yeah, totally, totally, totally. It's definitely good, and they they definitely drop the sort of um, the qual the sort of unreliable quality and incomplete quality of the narration and the nonlinearity of the way that they're communicating the events and the sort of like. Uh, you know, eye of history thing, and they really just go to a sort of omniscient third-person Hollywood narrator, you know, where the eye of the camera is following the pounding soundtrack. Um, yeah, yeah. And also gets a lot more racist by the end of it, but that's okay. In what way? Uh, because, um, oh, just because black people become villains? Uh, <laughs> so here's the thing. <laughs> the thing that's, that's complicated about District 9, right, is that it, I think that it approaches apartheid from kind of a South African perspective. So there are some things in there that don't necessarily make sense symbolically, I would guess, to an American audience. One of them is that there's three different groups that are present in District 9. There's the humans – Right, and humans represent like the establishment, and it's a it's a multi-ethnic human establishment. But they're sort of like the pre-apartheid ruling class, or the apartheid ruling classes, and, and they that. are and they are predominantly white. You know, it should yeah. Be, it I mean, should no, be but there's some major characters who are black in that group too, and I think sure, they sure. go to some trouble. Um, and then there's the aliens who are supposed to be like the 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 you know African Africans. Um, you know the the black Africans in in South Africa in their in the in the apartheid area, and then there are Nigerians who are like sort of witch doctor worshiping black people who deal arms and like criminal activity in District Nine. Um, so there's sort of like it's not voodoo quite, but it's like and it's not necessarily inaccurate based on some of the practices that do take place uh you know nobody is going to go out there and be like hey this is unfair to nigerian warlords because nigerian warlords <laughs> are actually quite a bit sophisticated than this and like they probably don't appreciate being portrayed in this derogatory manner <laughs> some, some of my best friends are nigerian warlords seriously i think the anti-nigerian warlord defamation league is going to be coming out pretty soon and is going to be protesting this movie uh which they would do if they could stop dealing arms and illegal oil for like 20 seconds and blood diamonds but no, work, work, work. It's all work. No play for the Nigerian warlords. <laughs> like, mind you, if, if there was a Nigerian warlord anti-defamation league, their protests would be vigorous and effective. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if we wanted a movie not to open, that movie would not open. <laughs> it's funny. You would go to the movie theater. They would be protesting. All of a sudden, there would be no popcorn at the movie theater. Yeah. And it would be like, why is there no popcorn? It's like, they're controlling you with hunger. And it's like, what? I have to protest now? I didn't, I didn't want to protest. And it's like, quiet. Get in line. Uh, here, here's, a bunch, here's a bunch of New England Patriot 19 and 0 t-shirts. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Pete, you are saying that the portrayal of the Nigerian warlords was racist? Oh, I mean, I'm just, I mean, it's, Had, I, could it's be not fair could to call be construed it as racist. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, sure. Of course. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing where it becomes difficult. It becomes difficult to make a movie in which there is no racism that is about apartheid. <laughs> well, um, Maybe even broader than well, that. The trouble with this with this uh, with this movie is that it's about how, you know, when you make someone else the other, in yeah. this case, you know, the aliens, then that's a bad thing. Yeah. Right, but also to do that, you know, to make a to make a compelling narrative, you need an other. 
group, yeah. which are you know, which are the villains, and those happen to be the Nigerian warlords. Well, the Nigerian warlords are not quite. I mean, the villains are the white people more than the Nigerian warlords, but the Nigerian warlords become more villainous as the movie goes on because they yes. become more involved in the plot. But I would say that the, the main thing that it's a point of confusion and the reason I brought it up is that I feel like, and I might be wrong, but I feel like to a South African audience, the distinction between the Nigerians and the, and the like South African black people is something that they would understand intuitively. Um, you know, that there's sort of like, a, a, you're, you're in District 9, there's a bunch of people running around with guns and a lot of innocent people are getting killed. To an American who see, you know, in America, when we oppressed the black people, we took away their ancestry and we like broke up their families and we didn't allow them to maintain their individual nationalities, right? And right. like the, the the American fallacy that all black people are one race and one culture, right? Right, is, exactly, exactly. So we might necessarily so the American viewer may not see the Nigerians as a foreign element in District Nine. Like they might not see them as as a foreign element even to the aliens, right? Um, and I think it's a useful distinction that we could all think about because, I mean, it's not like there aren't criminals in places like this, right? And, and so, you know, you need, to, you need a, a, a visual and uh, verbal vocabulary for talking about the kinds of criminality that grow out of poverty. And it's difficult because if you feel like you always have to lionize people who are oppressed, even when they're doing bad things, you know, it, it becomes tricky. Um, I actually had an interesting conversation this weekend with one of my friends about, um, you know, how can you believe in like good people and bad people when it you know i mean i'm sorry how can you believe that people all have good in them you know when you um when there seems to be such entrenched dysfunctionality and hostility in like various classes of people and i mean i'm not going to go into detail about it but like um when you encounter entrenched hostility and this is sort of one of the basic questions of the american political continuum right is like how do you deal with entrenched hostility um, what is the appropriate response to entrenched hostility? Is it like to destroy it or is it to try to ameliorate it? Um, and I feel like, of course, the human condition is not on that dichotomous dialectical spectrum. It's, you know, the human condition is, has to incorporate both these things. But, um, but you know, we can make emotional appeals based on these grounds. But anyway, um, District 9, as the movie goes on, you get like a sneering black warlord with like a whole bunch of thugs who's like blowing stuff up. And he's not really as simple a person as the movie in the, in the beginning of the movie. He's much more ambiguous a figure. Most of the figures are ambiguous. You also have this like uh, uh, Goldberg, poor man's Goldberg ripoff running around with like ordering those troops around. There's a couple of poor man's Goldberg. Is, is this a thing about South Africa where like all of their thug actors look like Goldberg or <laughs> and to be fair I'm not talking about Whoopi Goldberg uh, I'm talking about the WCW um, I, I want to use the word Earthsats but I don't know what it means um, the Earthsats WCW uh, WWE wrestler I'm going to go look up what Earthsats means um, wait, wait, is that, is that uh, Ersatz, U-R-S-H-E-Z, or Ersatz, E-R-Z-A-T-Z, that you're saying? E-R-Z-A-T-Z. Uh, uh, you, you had static on the first letter. I'm still confused. Oh, okay. I don't know. I, it's a schwa. I think it's a schwa. I don't think it's um, <laughs> E-R... Okay, hold on a second. We're, we're, we're falling they're, apart. They're, they're... Okay, it's spelled E-R-S-A-T-Z, mm-hmm. and it means... Yeah, that means uh, phony, right? It means the, the uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, serving as a substitute, synthetic, artificial, and ersatz coffee made from grain, an artificial substance or article used to replace something natural or genuine. So I guess the ersatz Goldberg is sort of like the fake Goldberg. On, I, I guess when I wanted to call him like the ersatz Goldberg on WWE, who is kind of a fake imitation of the Goldberg on WCW, but it's the same guy. 
Um, and that gets a little bit complicated. <laughs> wow, that is he's like playing, He's playing an imitation of himself. He's being he come, he's being brought back to to imitate a role. So like a similar a similar situation to that would be like um, James like Sean Connery and Never Say Never Again is like the Ursatz James Bond. Um, you could say that the um, the Terminator movies that we've been getting lately are kind of Ursatz uh, Terminators in that they're like they are Terminator movies, but they're kind of just imitations of the real Terminator movies. Right. And by the way, for those of you listening at home, I just made air quotes when I said real. So, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, technically all Terminators are air sets because yeah. they're all artificial and synthetic uh, life forms. Um, although I don't know if they're forms of life formally, as we are saying. Anyway. Getting back to the Goldberg-esque uh, uh, you know, South African dudes, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm getting this from exactly, but I think they're playing into some sort of stereotypical uh, depiction of the white Afrikaans uh, soldier who, um, in in some context, would be immediately associated with being a big jerk and oppressing so like a black big, people. A big thuggish guy with a skinhead and a, and a goatee is what we're saying. I and think so, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Again, not I mean, 100% sure where I'm getting that from. They're caricatures in the movie. Um, I mean, although the the voodoo witch doctor lady is pretty pretty probably worse, but um, uh, she's not voodoo, of course. She's like African animism and all that stuff. But because um, there's I mean, no, it is all connected, right? But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all part and parcel of the same sort of diaspora. Um, although it's not really a diaspora if you still have a large population back home that's doing it. Um, so it's <laughs> right. So it's is it? I mean, because do you, do you have to be kicked out of where you were originally? This is the this is the podcast where we use words and then figure out what they. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Except with the exception of transcendent, because we took care to look it up in the dictionary before we started the show. Yeah, well, I looked it up on YouTube too. If I could find a YouTube, YouTube video that told me what diaspora means, um, then that would be pretty useful, and it would probably involve like Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you have to be. I don't, you don't have to be um, kicked out of your home country to be in diaspora. Okay. Um, All right. Is that is speaking, that true? I'm going to look that up as on a, Speaking as a Korean American, as part of the diaspora. Okay. Now is that diaspora or diaspora? <laughs> You say diaspora, I say diaspora. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Let's call the whole thing off. Right, exactly. Um, I want to get back to, uh, Pete, w- with you. Uh, one of the the kind of the, the central plot point in the movie, and if I'm going to spoil anything, this is essentially the spoiler of it. It's, again, but it's not, probably in, in all the reviews that I've read, so... It could be, but, but the, 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 the pivotal turning point essentially is that. So, um, you know, as, you know, the, the main character in this movie... Um, he gets in a lot of trouble in that yeah. he, you know, gets sprayed with alien gunk, which turns him into an alien, um, which causes every all the, you know, the the bad guys to be after him because it, because he's in, he's partly an alien, he can use the alien weapons, and that's a big right, deal. Right, right. Yeah. So along the way, he befriends an alien, and they try to work together um, to help him, you know, reverse this alienification process and allow the aliens to get out. Yeah, right, yeah. and. Yep. You think that they've become this team, but then, you know, suddenly, um, you know, uh, as they're making their escape, essentially, uh, the human guy tries to double crosses or, you know, well, leaves, no behind, there... leaves behind the alien guy, tries to leave behind the alien guy in his own uh, clumsy attempt to escape and to, you know, do the, the, the de-alienification process himself. Well, but I mean, just to be fair and to not go into too much detail and spoilers, there's a a number of crosses and double crosses that happen between these two characters. So, like, it's not entirely clear exactly how it's going to end up between these two guys, but, like, he's neither the first nor the last to, like, go back on his word. 
um, in, in that little relationship. But yeah, I know what you're that's, saying. That's, that's so, a fair point, but that is the, clearly yeah. the most obvious one there. It's like, whoa, whoa, right. whoa, wait, wait, wait a second kind of thing. And yeah. then, and then, which, which contrasts very much towards the end where you have a very, straight up hollywood you know buddy yeah. cop kind of kind of moment which is like yeah. you know you go ahead make it to the ship and then it's like <laughs> which means you know i'm not you know i'm, I'm not, not leaving I'm, here without you I'm not leaving uh, here literally like this, this you may not be here i may can't carry it for you mr frodo but i can carry you <laughs> on my does somebody, does somebody uh shoot their gun into the air and go ah uh, or in this case go as they're shooting the gun into the air. It's all pretty very much, similar. Yeah. Basically, you know, the human guy. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cliche. I mean, we don't want to go into dude. So what's your point, Mark? My, like, my, let's get away from the spoilers. <laughs> get, what's the point? My point, my, point my, my point or my question, rather, essentially, is that, you know, that kind of cliche moment at the end there, does that undo in some ways sort of the, uh, I don't know, the, the specialness of this movie? In, oh. <laughs> in other words, like to, to, to back up. Tell you mean special, really, right? To back up, I think what a lot of the movies about is I mean, we were talking earlier about the human condition, and if there's yeah. anything about the human condition that it is, it's essentially that we're all selfish and that we're afraid of yeah. others, that others that we don't know, and we're yeah. looking out for essentially for number one. Yeah. And if so you like, really wanted to play that all the way through, then um, you know the guy would have double crossed, and you know essentially one of them would have double crossed the other one and that would have been it without this like you know i'm not leaving without you and i'll come back for you in three years like yeah, very cliche yeah. like you know buddy buddy kind of stuff at the end so so yeah the first it's, it's a two-hour movie the first hour and 45 minutes is about the human condition and the last 15 minutes is about the tango and cash condition which is very different can you explain that to the listeners who may not be oh, familiar with the tango so and tango cash and cash is a piece of ancient literature one of the most the earliest narratives from the uh kurt russell sylvester Stallone. <laughs> buddy cop era, which spanned roughly from Tango and Cash to the end of Tango and Cash. Um, so, like, all right, so t- <laughs> Tango and Cash is, I think, the reason most people know the word Fubar. Who know the word Fubar? Although I believe that it's uh, it's it's a it's a more popular military expression, I believe. Um, but yeah, I would say most people know it. I would say the most people know it from Save It Private Ryan. That's my opinion. But go oh, ahead. Oh, really? yeah. Oh, okay. I knew it from Tango and Cash. Tango and Cash came out in 1989. It's got a 5.7 on IMDb. <laughs> it's about two cops who have to <laughs> which go is, against which the is ball. Solid, like, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like two cops who can't follow the rules because they've been like they've got their badges have been taken away and they have to clear their names and like there's it's got one of my. <laughs> Do, do these two cops get along with each other? No, they don't. It's crazy. They really don't. It's it's actually very difficult. But they do get along with Terry Hatcher, who who is in the movie. Um, at any at any rate, um, yeah. The the tagline is two of LA's top rival cops are going to have to work together, even if it kills them. <laughs> Everyone knows that a good police office likes to determine its top performers and cause them to become rivals against one another in, like, the filing of papers and reports and, like, these these finishing off of cases. And as such, it makes sense. But one of the things that I always remember Tango and Cash for is having a great example of one of my least favorite kinds of action set pieces, which it has a totally righteous zipline scene. Uh, (laughs) 
I don't know. If you've known me for a long time, you might have heard me say that I don't like zipline scenes. Don't like zipline scenes. Don't like slide scenes. Don't like any scene where the main narrative action is for somebody to go to the top of something that's kind of sloped and then by the force of gravity go to the bottom <laughs> it's not a particularly compelling piece of storytelling if you've seen one you've seen them all and the best one is probably in willow these three things are not something <laughs> want to be associated with <laughs> i'm reminded of, <laughs> i'm reminded of the scene in the dolph lundgren punisher movie well the other thing is that zip lines people think zip lines make you invincible like like in the in the dolph lundgren punisher movie he takes a zip line he slowly rides down a zip line over a gunfight between the italian mafia and the yakuza like firing a whole bunch of submachine gun bullets indiscriminately at everybody and like you know nobody thinks to shoot the giant swedish guy who's like descending like you know freaking like um uh norma desmond into the middle of this (laughs) (laughs) it's nonsense but anyway so yeah so that's my explanation of what tango and cash is and it and it's like oh my god we we really didn't get along for so long but you know what with that last hundred bullets that got fired at me really changed my mind about you guy like you're pretty awesome (laughs) the first 1500 bullets that we dodged successfully like i still hated you through all of those but those last hundred man that was that was that was something special we bonded um, There's something very interesting to me about uh, the way that District 9 ends up then, because it's kind of saying that the only way to, uh, to really heal the scars of apartheid is to be in tango and cash, right? That, like, <laughs> these, are your, these are your options. Either everything is like horrible forever, or it's the end of Bad Boys 2. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood action movie morality is the is the light and the truth and the way, and we need to like be doing that whenever possible. Yeah. Now, now I thought that the the me- the apartheid message, and I, I'll touch on this quickly because we're I know we're running out of time, but I felt like the apartheid message in District Nine isn't what we would want it to be because the events of District Nine don't play out the way the events of apartheid play out at all, um, and the main. Um, change that happens over the course of the movie really is the change of the character who is doused with this substance and becomes this abomination, right? Um, and so I, I think you were talking in the pregame, Jordan, about how kind of uncomfortable and creepy it is that like the, the aliens in District 9 are sitting on a huge cache of weapons and have this like substance that are going to turn people into them, right? Um, yeah, right? like if, if you were if you were to take away the metaphor and be like, okay, we're gonna do an apartheid movie where it turns out that the black people have a cache of super weapons and a spray that will turn the Afrikaners black. You know, I think that this yeah. is the story that we need to tell. Yeah. Be, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. And I mean. <laughs> Now, of course, the movie doesn't play out the way the marketing plays out. It's a lot like AI. Like, the marketing was very different from the movie. Right. To be clear also as well, the spray was not intended to turn uh, human people into aliens. The spray was exactly. intended to be used essentially as a fuel to, to yeah. help them escape. But it also it, one of the, it had this, this curious side effect of also turning humans into aliens. Yeah. So the, the sort of narrative, the sort of storytelling action of that, the, the, the symbolism of that is that um, – you know, it's, it doesn't really make sense that something that would fuel a spaceship also would turn somebody into an alien, right? Yeah. But if you think about it... I sprayed myself with rocket fuel, like, twice, and I never turn into anything cool. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's sort of like, I, you know, I got bombarded by cosmic rays, and all I got was this, like, stupid lymphoma out of the deal. <laughs> um, it's like the Adam West in, in the Family Guy moment. Yeah. On top girls, girls! <laughs> But um, but 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 if you think about it, um, and there is an essential 
from the perspective of the old guard, um, uh, apartheid perspective in this movie, because the same force that would allow the aliens to sort of reclaim their homeland and stop being refugees in their own country is the force that turns the sort of buttoned-up white guy who lives his prosperous suburban life with his beautiful wife into an abomination that he hardly recognizes, right? Um, Is that, like, there is this fear and this thing that, like, there is something transformative about the 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 uh, force behind the liberation of the oppressed people in South Africa, and there's an anxiety that it will destroy your country. And you know what? It is kind of destroying your country because your country's built on racism, and like you know, not first racism. You know, like you know, putting, putting people in camps. And like this is a guy. I mean, it, don't, don't cry for him, Argentina. Like at the beginning of the movie, he like aborts a hundred alien babies. You know, like he's he's not a huge uh, wonderful dude. Um, he's like very friendly and sympathetic, but like he's shown to be pretty monstrous in a couple of, of circumstances. Not like our monstrous, but like I am a bureaucrat and I do what I'm told, and I'm going to kill these aliens. And like, um, but he like he has his own morals. He's just totally blinded by the system, and he's like very complacent and like not very smart. Um, but yeah, but like the movie is about um, what happens to the old South Africa, right? You have this, this, this way of living and this main character that represents this way of living that is this sort of state of willful ignorance that is a state of sort of I have been passed down this favor. What's very interesting in the movie that the protagonist of the movie gets – at the beginning of the movie, he gets promoted. Um, and this is the thing that sets off all the chain of events in the movie is that he gets promoted to lead this new operation in his company, which has to do with these aliens and like refugee-type activity with these aliens. And he's promoted because he's married to the boss's wife, right? So he, and, and there's a lot of talk about how he's not that smart and he doesn't really deserve the promotion. And he's like – you see him and he's like a nice guy, but it's pretty clear that he's, in, he's out of his element, right? Like he has to deal with all these <laughs> hardcore military people. But much like he's Donnie. Not, what? <laughs> Much like Donnie. Sorry, Jordan was starting yeah, to laugh. Yeah, exactly. Donnie, I don't, I don't know that. bullying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like so, so many men of his generation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but he's out of his element. Like, he tries to stop the military guys from committing atrocities against the aliens, but is, like, totally incapable of doing it. Right? Like, he's right. like, no, don't shoot that one. Oh, crap. You know, like, I, you shot another <laughs> one. Um, like, this happens for a lot of the movie, where he's like, don't do that! You're not allowed, it's against regulations! You're not allowed to do that! Like, you know, he, the, he, he hides behind the veneer of legality of the things that he's doing, and he uses that as justification. So, he's had handed down to him this way of living that isn't really compatible with, like, the aliens, and the existence of the aliens, and there's a certain tragedy, and I don't mean that in the sense that everybody uses tragedy now, meaning, like, a sad thing that happened unjustly. I mean, like, he has a tragic flaw. You know, he has a tragic flaw, he makes tragic choices, and he falls from a great height. And that great height is the white domination of South Africa in this movie. And he falls from that height and he becomes this very thing that he despises deep down. Or like, even if he doesn't despise, that he, he benefits from the oppression of this, right? Like, right. he makes his living off oppressing these aliens. And because of this, he is cast out and he loses everything, right? And like, that I think is the main narrative force of the movie once you get away from the tango and cash part of it, which is kind of tacked down. Um, where it's like, I went into District 9. I confronted the reality of District 9, and it kind of destroyed me. And there's this whole sort of, like, weird, like, you know, oh, the aliens are good, but not really. And, like, there's, like, a little alien kid that's really cute. And it's just, like, (laughs) that stuff is tacked on to make it Hollywoodish. I think that the real story, as it's told in the beginning and the end, is the story of this guy and his, like, his realization and confrontation of the evils that he profits from. And one of the really difficult reasons... 
one of the really difficult things to deal with, and I'll stop ranting after this, but one of the really difficult dealing things to deal with in this world when you're trying to write injustice is, is that there are so many people who, by their own standards and the standards of the people around them, haven't done anything wrong, who depend upon injustice for their livelihoods. And these people will go to great lengths in terms of self-delusion and, and willful ignorance to persist in their own lifestyles. And I think that all three of us on this podcast are among those people. Like, we benefit materially from a lot of terrible things that happen to people we don't know, right? And yeah, like, I, 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 eat, I eat all kinds of strawberries that are picked by migrant laborers, and yeah, I cannot exactly. afford to buy them if the people that were picking them were paid like a living wage, but I still yeah. eat the strawberries. I mean, we don't live in an apartheid state, but like, so it's not quite as obvious, or honestly, I'll say not quite as bad, but like, you know, I mean, if you buy a diamond <laughs> ring for your fiance and it's a blood diamond, like that's a rough situation that you're putting yourself in. And you're going to go to great lengths to try to feel not like you're a horrible person for doing that. And so you need those people. You need those everyday good people to affect these changes. But you also have to destroy their lifestyles, their families, and everything that they love in order for this to happen. So you've it's like a very. <laughs> you've got to turn them into bugs, essentially, right? <laughs> you, you basically have to, like, you know, basically make them equal with the things that they've elevated themselves over, which unjustly in many cases, in most cases, is other human beings. I mean, and you could take it another step and say animals, like you've elevated yourself unjustly over animals, you oppress them, you abuse them, you live in a beneficial way because of the suffering that animals go through, and in order for me to make you, make write that injustice, like you have to eat plants like an animal does. That is the eating, the eating of meat is really all that separates us from animals. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. You've heard of, ladies and gentlemen. That's the overthinking it mandate, and our lesson from District Nine is that we all should become vegetarians. Now, 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 now please, did I go over the line there? Was that what I was saying? Horribly? No, 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 it, not at all. I think Pete, Pete you're 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 getting it. You're you extrapolated a lot of deep meaning from that movie. And what, Look and, at the URL name of the website. That's what that's all about. Yes, and, oh, and double up. Oh, oh. And I did. And I mentioned this, I think, in the comments, but I want to mention just again. Both you and Stokes, you know, were able to really extrapolate a lot of additional meaning um, from the movie Up, which I saw mm. first and was like, you know, kind of like, you know, I liked it, but didn't, you know, didn't think there's a whole lot going underneath the surface. And boy, you guys really illuminated a whole lot for me, which I think again you have done uh, for District Nine. So. Uh, on behalf of our overthinking it audience everywhere, I definitely would like to thank you for bringing this up, which is some fantastic grade A overthinking it. Any last thoughts on District 9 before we wrap up? Uh, I can't wait until District 9 squared, also known as District 81. <laughs> That's going to be great. District 81. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was uh, I was very disappointed to find out that District Nine was not a prequel to the Jean-Pierre Jeunet movie District Thirteen, which involves uh, David Bell jumping through like twenty windows. <laughs> Do people are uh, there any jumping through windows in this movie? Uh, no, there there is there any jumping? Through? I, don't I don't think, think so. I mean, that, there's Most of it takes place outside. Um, there's parts of it that are inside, but it tends to be in windowless compounds, right? So, so that is no, one way. No, uh, no, no tacked-on parkour sequence in this action movie the way there is in, like, all other action movies these days? Uh, I mean, there's a robot mech battle, which is... Oh, okay. That's, which was excellent. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty cool, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool. I will call it a pretty blatant fan service, for yeah. lack of a better word, but it was, it was pretty cool. Um, now, I, 
Oh, and the last thing that I wanted to say was that one thing you guys missed out on because I talked about Tango and Cash for too much was my extended dis- discussion on the apotheosis of Nelson Mandela. But I will save that for later. And if you want to get involved in the Pete Fenzel apotheosis drive, the drive to use the word apotheosis more frequently in culture, you can go back and read uh, Fen- uh, Fenzel on Dragon Ball 2, the apotheosis of the Super Saiyan. Uh, or was that maybe Fenzel on Dragon Ball 1 or 3? I forget. But anyway... We need to use the word apotheosis more because I feel like it's a relevant word in t- cultural criticism of pop culture. So, Agreed. So and if you want to impress us with your uses of the word apotheosis, be it from Nelson Mandela or other things, you can email us at podcast@overthinkingit.com. You can call us and impress us with your you know, vocalization of the word apotheosis at 20 eat log one That's 203-285-6401. We'll be you know, collecting this, the user feedback that we're getting. Um, user listener feedback we're getting over the course of the several weeks and we'll be uh, bringing that up in a future episode uh, you can of course leave a comment as well on the show on the show post once this appears on the blog and what blog is that you might ask what location is it you can find that's wait, 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 wait. W- one w- second one second i'm sorry sorry do we do we want to do that that last thing we were going to do very very quickly very very quickly very, all very right quickly. i'll take, okay. my, I'll take all right. my pants so i just want to everybody <laughs> should know that we're recording this sunday night and apparently, you know, all the cool kids, you know, who are con- cool consumers of pop culture spent, uh, you know, their evening watching Mad Men instead of, <laughs> you know, talking about people buried under, buried under the ice uh, and causing them to miss Woodstock. Um, so the three of us, you know, are not you know, particularly big Mad Men fans. So we thought we'd entertain you all with our predictions for this upcoming new season of Mad Men. I'll predictions start. for Mad Men for those who do not watch Mad Men. Exactly. And I'll start and I'll say that Don Draper... Uh, you know, will get buried under ice, uh, or, or frozen alive in, in in some way by the end of this. And uh, the following season then will involve him being unfrozen in modern day era, and him trying to deal with you know our <laughs> the 2009 world of advertising and its glitziness and uh, everything. That's that my was prediction. mine. You took mine, Mark. No, you didn't. That's awesome. That's brilliant. <laughs> Benzel, what is your Mad Men prediction for this year? My prediction? <laughs> predictions, Mark? Pain! <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no my, my prediction is that um, there's going to be a time in the show where in order to solve a difficult problem, one of the people who's on Mad Men is going to have to go from one place to another place along some sort of diagonal trajectory and is in doing so going to have to devise a crude zip line that he will then like, <laughs> put like a belt over or maybe like a cigarette holder or, or like a woman and like because they like to abuse women on that show or something, right? And then slide down the zip line and that's how he's going to solve his advertising problem. Oh, that and Mel Gibson can hear women's thoughts. <laughs> I can't wait to see and my, that. Uh, my, my prediction, eerily similar to Mark's in some ways, is that uh, Don Draper will be sprayed with a mysterious goo that turns him into a half-human, half-prawn hybrid and will then become a pawn in a power play between rival governments and Nigerian warlords. But, you know, we'll have to see how it pans out. Well, yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I, I, th- I think that Don Draper actually gets sacked in the first play of the first game and ends up missing the rest of the season with a torn ACL. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what happens. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you guys for indulging me on that. I know that it's very late. So, uh... <laughs> so remember, you heard it first here on the Overthinking It podcast. 
And what's that URL that I was about to say before I was uh, reminded of our Mad Men special uh, special footnote to the podcast? That's www.overthinkingit.com. The site the site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Yippee Kaye! Wait, no, that's that's Die Hard. Crud. Wait, what was the line? <laughs> you heard it here first. Non Draper will be frozen in ice, turned into an alien, and descend a zip line. It's quality television. I right can't there. wait. <laughs>